The BBC would like to apologise for the following announcement. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. I'm Bob Urquhue. And this will be our last episode for the season. Uh, doing 12 episodes, and then uh, next year, probably in January, we'll pick up with another 12 episodes. And today we're going to finish our conversation about Wittgenstein. We talked last time a little bit, I think, about the private language argument and how that affects dualism. And so now we're going to look at Wittgenstein's theory of knowledge, his epistemology, which is pretty radical, to say the least. He pretty much cleared the way for the, the absurdity, the uh, irrationality of a private language, and uh, led into the whole argument about certainty. Yeah, because they're definitely connected. He, he, he uses the notion of what it means to know something to show the absurdity of a private language, and the whole concept of knowledge and certainty is the subject of a text called On Certainty that Wittgenstein wrote towards the end of his life. Uh, he never actually published it himself, his literary executors published it, but it was mostly inspired by a colleague of Wittgenstein's, a fellow named G.E. Moore, who was also interested in questions of epistemology and tried to take a kind of a common sense approach to epistemology by basically saying, look, uh, uh, all the skepticism that philosophy gets itself into is, is really unnecessary. I mean, there are certain things we all know for certain, right? I know I'm a human being. I know I'm a man, I know I have two hands, and so that kind of solves some of the problems we've gotten into over the years in philosophy. I mean, can't those things be known with certainty and that be the end of it? Although, at the same time, Moore and some members of his school were speculating that some things we just take for granted as almost certain truths are not so certain at all. For example... Um, statement like stealing is wrong that in, in Moore's school that would be considered more of an emotional statement than a statement about certainty we can't know for sure that stealing is wrong because all the statement tells us is how we feel about stealing yeah that's right even though Moore wanted to give up skepticism in one area of philosophy he was very skeptical in another area dealing with questions of ethics uh, the whole idea that you could say stealing is wrong is a fact about the world mm -hmm. was very much called into question. Sure. He and his school would, would have called that a meaningless statement. It, it had no grounding in reality um, because it, all it did was measure the extent of our feelings. We are repulsed by the idea of stealing. But that might not repulse other people. So it's, a, it's relative to cultures and he got into a whole can of worms there. Now, in some respects, Wittgenstein might have agreed with at least part of Moore's ethical theory. Wittgenstein was fond of saying things like, ethics is not a part of the world, it's, it's transcendent, so we can't really say too much about it in a meaningful way. But very definitely, Wittgenstein disagreed with Moore's epistemology. And you can tell that right from the beginning of On Certainty, where he says, 
if you do know that here is one hand, we'll grant you all the rest. This is alluding to Moore's claim that we know we have a hand. Mm -hmm. For Wittgenstein, this is a misuse of language to say that we know something like that. Now, when when we present Wittgenstein's view, some people say, well, it's you're just ba- basically making a semantic distinction that's not really very philosophically important. That is the distinction between knowledge and certainty. Mm-hmm. But it's actually more than that. But the basic idea for Wittgenstein is that these things that cannot be known might in fact be certain. But it's not just that we're playing with words. There's a deeper uh, distinction going on here between knowledge and certainty than just what do we happen to call this particular statement. So there is something, in fact, many scholars say there's something fundamentally important going on here in Wittgenstein's philosophy that's kind of a clue to many other areas of, of his philosophy, which we'll have occasion to talk about. I wonder sometimes if if they're still battling with the the whole idea of phenomenology and appearances. Can we know, do we only know appearances? Because in, in his uncertainty, he says, instead of saying, I know, couldn't Moore, and he challenges Moore here, have said, it stands fast for me that I know something. In other words, it's, uh, it's the considered opinion of me and many others that this is the case. It yeah. seems to us yeah, this is a very uh, a regularly occurring expression in uncertainty, standing fast. Um, and it does sort of allude to what you, what you describe as per- perhaps a consensus view of knowledge. That is, wh- at least in part, knowledge is something that we agree to as being known. Just, just as with a language. Yes, a language exactly. Only works if we agree to the meanings of the word. Certainly, and it's that fundamental level of agreement that we talked about last time is driving Wittgenstein's idea of of what knowledge is. Um, he uses another nice image later on in, in Uncertainty of uh, a riverbed and the water in the river mm-hmm. and how the riverbed is fairly hardened and not subject to change, whereas the water is extremely fluid and subject to quite uh, quite a lot of change. And so this is the relationship between knowledge and certainty. Knowledge can be fluid to some degree or other. Uh, Now, he's quick to point out that certainty can be fluid as well, but just not as fluid. The bedrock, so to speak, is always more solid than the water. But the relationship between them, he says, is not clear. There's not a bright line between them such that one can't cross over to the other. There can be crossover. And we've, we've seen this throughout history of course, where something that is absolutely certain becomes questioned and then becomes doubted mm-hmm. uh, that the Earth is the center of the solar system. Sure. It's a good example. You can see uh, Wittgenstein's Germanic mentality coming up because he, that idea that the image of the riverbed fits in with the whole German idea of Grund, grounding. All reality has to be grounded in something, um, an or a source, um, something you can count on. Yeah, this is a fundamental part of Wittgenstein's uh, notion of certainty. In fact, in the investigations, there's a famous passage where he says, at a certain point uh, in our questioning, we reach the bedrock, and then my spade is turned, and I'm inclined to say, this is just what I do. And for Wittgenstein, this is the foundation of knowledge, mm. this this ground, this, this uh, uh, sometimes he calls it bedrock, um, so that that image is a very important part of uh, 
of his notion of certainty. Uh, the interesting part is what's the nature of that foundation? It's very much different from the Cartesian notion of foundation that we've talked about earlier. In fact, in, in 20th century uh, epistemology, there's two schools of thought, one of which is called foundationalism, the other of which is called anti-foundationalism. And the basic difference between them is whether there is this notion of a fundamental basis to knowledge, something that can be certain that we can rest all of our other knowledge on, or not. And this is the debate uh, in epistemology. Yeah, and doesn't Wittgenstein actually ask, do we have to debate about ultimate foundations? I mean, can't we just take something for granted as common sense, that we're standing on solid ground, that we have two hands, that we have a brain? Do we have to prove that all the time? Uh, and the answer is no. Uh, not only do we not have to, we do take it as the basis upon which we make other claims of knowledge. It's not something that's investigated on a daily basis. And there's a practical matter here. Uh, quite apart from what Descartes thought, which was to start by doubting everything, Wittgenstein says you can't do that. Mm -hmm. If you tried to doubt everything, you wouldn't get as far as doubting anything at all. Mm. At, at one point in the... Uh, in the work on certainty, he says, if you want the door to turn, the hinges have to stay put. There's <laughs> right. got to be something mm -hmm. that's solid and stands as a foundation. Now, but this raises an interesting question because when we talk about something that is a claim of knowledge, we want to ask the question, is this true or false? If I say, as I used the example last time, I know the capital of uh, Illinois, it's Chicago, it makes sense to ask whether that's true or false. Mm -hmm. That's how knowledge works. Certainty doesn't work like that. I'm certain I'm a human being. Well, in one sense, you might say, well, I could ask the question, is that true or false? But in another sense, it, the question doesn't make any sense. Sort of like the question, do I have a brain? True or false? Well, the question doesn't even make sense. It doesn't come up in ordinary discourse. It's taken for granted, I have a brain. In fact, Wittgenstein says, all the evidence speaks in its favor, none against it. Mm -hmm. However, it might turn out that when my skull's operated on, it's empty. <laughs> now, this creates a lot of confusion when people try to understand Wittgenstein, because on the one hand, he seems to be saying, well, it's obvious we have a brain, but then he says something like that, and you kind of wonder, what in the world does he mean? How, how in the world could it be imaginable that my skull should turn out empty? Yeah. I think he's playing on um, a problem with empiricism here. I yes, think he's trying yes. to do a tongue-in-cheek approach to this, because remember, the empiricist said all of our knowledge has to come from sense experience. Yes, and there's no knowledge unless it's verifiable. Yeah. Verifiable. And in practical terms, I mean, I've never seen my own brain. Mm -hmm. um, I've never bothered to verify that there is one. And so if you take the empiricist line of thinking seriously, it would be possible at least that I have no brain. Mm -hmm. and of course, that's totally ridiculous, and that's Wittgenstein's point. It's a completely ridiculous thing to say, but that's the kind of thing you end up with if you start with the presumption that all your knowledge comes from sense experience. So Wittgenstein does not want to defend empiricism uh, at all. No, because it, it, it seems to be a lot of wasted effort to have to prove everything to be the case. A human being could say, we've all got two kidneys. That's part of being human. And we can go on that assumption, and, and it works for every one of us. We wouldn't be alive if we didn't have working kidneys. 
but there might in fact might in fact be someone who's born with just one kidney if they were born with none they wouldn't be alive very long but they, we can function in one kidney but to, to go around trying to prove that everyone has two kidneys uh, or that there are some people with one it seems like a wasted effort and that's a good example because it raises something that, that Wittgenstein talks about throughout the text which is under ordinary circumstances these questions don't come up now he uses that phrase deliberately because there might be cases that are extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Under ordinary circumstances, the question of my having two functioning kidneys doesn't come up. Now, if one day I wake up in extreme pain uh, in my lower back, then a question might come up, do I have a functioning kidney? At that point, if I go to the doctor, it might be discovered, well, the problem is you were only born with one kidney, mm-hmm. and then I discover that. Mm-hmm. Um, but under ordinary circumstances, it doesn't even come up as an issue any more than having a brain or having two hands comes up as an issue. It's only in extraordinary circumstances that these things become a practical issue. Or when we're doing philosophy, says Wittgenstein, they come up as mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. Thanks to people like Descartes who said, well, maybe I can doubt that I have a body. <laughs> and Wittgenstein says, that doesn't make well, any it's, sense. It's a useless expenditure of effort. Yeah. And how in the world could you do it uh, if I could really doubt the existence of my hands, says Wittgenstein, then I couldn't be in the position to take the sight of them as evidence. Because if I can doubt something as fundamental to my very being as having two hands, why would I trust the sight of them? I mean, I could trust, I could distrust everything at that point. So you couldn't say, well, I don't happen to be looking at my hands now, so I doubt them. If you could really do that, looking at them wouldn't assuage the doubt. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that get, get us back to the um, the people who doubted the um, people like Hume and and, and Locke um, and Berkeley um, by saying, "You say that this rock is only a figment of my imagination that I create it in my mind. Here, I kick it. I have a sore foot now." That proves the rock is there. It's not just created in my mind. Aren't we kind of going back to that? Yeah, seems like. And, and Wittgenstein uh, would be the one, like Samuel Johnson, famously, mm-hmm. yes. who kicks the, kicks the rock and says, that's it. That's where it stands. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, in, the, in Uncertainty, at, at a certain point, he says what might be a nice way of encapsulating the whole idea. My life consists in being content to accept many things. I'm content to accept that that's a rock. I don't even have to kick it, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm content to, uh, to... I'll concede that it's there, even if I'm not looking at it. And I'm prepared to do that with quite a lot of things in my life. right? I've heard about uh, China. I've never been there. Mm-hmm. I'm content to uh, believe that there are Chinese people over there, even as we speak. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go visit them to know that. I might enjoy visiting them, but I don't have to go visit them to prove it. Right. We don't have to empirically prove everything that we experience. Um, Just as in language, we don't have to go around defining every word. We accept a received language that's already been predefined for us. So a lot of what we accept as knowledge has been predefined or pre-experienced, and people have told us about it. Sure, a lot of our knowledge is secondhand, but if, if our only valid knowledge would be first-hand experiential knowledge, we wouldn't know very much because we wouldn't have time. Right. 
And it turns out that for Wittgenstein, this is a fundamental part of our life as a human being. And we want to talk about this notion that's very, very important in, in Wittgenstein's philosophy, this notion of form of life, uh, when we get back from the break. There is one activity in life, your mind in action. This is true. There is one activity in life. This is true. The power of your mind. There is one activity in your life. mind in action. This is true. The power of your mind. There is one activity in your life. mind in action. This is true. There is one activity in your life. mind in action. Your mind in action. This is true. Your mind in action. There is one activity. Okay, welcome back. Um, my name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricue. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is the uh, last episode of this semester, of this season of Radio Free Philosophy. And we'll be back in January with some more exciting topics. But we hope we've left you with some questions. And we want this to be as interactive as possible. So how about emailing us? Yeah, we, we, we have an email address now. It's askaphilosopher. A-S-K-A philosopher at yahoo.com and you can access uh, that through any email server and email us questions and we'll discuss them on the broadcasts next season, next semester. And yeah, we, we don't have a way of answering phone calls at this point. Maybe that's going to come eventually, but yeah, we would like it to be a little bit interactive. So please email us with any questions or comments and we'll be happy to use them. Sure, and time permitting, we'll get to all your emails. We can't guarantee it, but we'll, we might uh, bundle them into a theme. But we will answer you one way or the other. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to sift through the thousands before we can do that, of course. But <laughs> Okay, so back to Wittgenstein. Um, we're trying to figure out what his views on epistemology are. And I think there's a nice way to uh, illustrate this and be interactive at the same time. So here's what I would like everybody to do that's listening to this, unless you're driving in a car, of course. Stand up. Just stand up. And Don't be then, afraid. Just stand up. Yeah. And now, okay, now go ahead and sit back down. And now I have a question for you. And it's a question Wittgenstein asks in Uncertainty, which is, I, see, I know you didn't check to see whether you had two feet when you got up. So I want to know why you didn't do that. And Wittgenstein's answer is very instructive. He says, there is no why. I simply don't. This is how I act. I think that's a wonderful way of summarizing his notion of what certainty is. Hmm. Hmm. It's, it's how we live our lives. Yeah, these are such fundamental truths with us that we don't have to check them out all the time. We don't have to verify them. It's like breathing. Yeah, and it, you, you would probably feel silly if you verified some of these things. Next time I get up, I'm going to make sure I have both feet. Mm -hmm. That's kind of silly. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be silly to check to see whether you have your shoelaces tied if you know you're wearing a pair of shoes that often the shoelaces come untied. Mm -hmm. But it would be absolutely silly under normal circumstances to look down and say, yeah, they're still there, two feet. Okay, now I can get up. Because, like you say, it's built into who we are as human beings. 
Sure, if we had to think every time we put one foot in front of the other when we walked, we'd accomplish nothing. Yeah, including walking, probably. Probably. We'd be stymied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, this is really what uh, what certainty is for Wittgenstein. But it makes it sound so ungrounded, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, but in fact, Wittgenstein says this is about as good as it gets as far as ground goes. In fact, uh, in a work called The Remarks on the Foundations of Mathematics, Wittgenstein says the difficulty is not finding the ground. It's stopping yourself once you find it and not trying to go further down. See, that's where philosophy gets into its problems. It runs into the ground, and then it keeps digging. Mm. Mm. And all that digging churns up confusion, which we've seen with Descartes, Locke, Barclay might stand out as a good example. Hume, certainly, with his denial of even the fundamental aspects of causality. Uh, All those, Wittgenstein would say, are the result of the same problem, digging further than one needs to to find the answer. And yet, sometimes things we take for granted come into conflict with things other people take for granted. We have a conflict of ideas, sometimes a conflict of morality or ethics, differing positions. How does Wittgenstein address that? Well, in a couple different ways. He doesn't want to be an out-and-out absolutist and say there's only one way to add, for instance, uh, in fact, he uses mathematical examples quite a lot, so this this is a good one to talk about. There's not only one way to do computation. Now, there's one way for us, and we think it's the right way, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a totally different way of doing it. He also, though, doesn't want to be a relativist and say it's all just up for grabs because however we choose to add, subtract, count, calculate, what have you, it's fundamentally built into how we live our lives, so it's got to be integrated into an entire life. So it can't be just, today I decide two and two is five, and so that's how it's going to be for me from now on. I couldn't do that, because it would have to separate me from so much of the rest of the world I live in, because I'm connected with a whole network of people, places, concepts, and ideas. But there might be a, a, a culture that did things radically different. In its entirety. I have a case in point. Wittgenstein is famous for saying the world is everything that is the case. Right. Now, what if what is the case is very different from what is the case in another culture? And the example that comes to mind is the court case just the other day where an Ethiopian man was sentenced to 15 years in prison, um, 10 of which he had to serve. And the cause of his imprisonment was his being convicted for having mutilated his daughter. Now, when his daughter was two years old, this man, living in this country, and in Georgia, as a matter of fact, ritually took scissors and cut off the young girl's clitoris. That's called female genital mutilation in our culture, but it's it's almost mandatory in the Ethiopian culture, where 85% of girls undergo this kind of um, initiation ceremony, I guess you call it that. But it was considered to be such a reprehensible act. And even the daughter, when she turned seven, um, learned enough about American culture to turn her father in. And the man was found guilty. Now we got a clear clash of culture here. And this man felt he was doing the right thing. He was, he was acting according to what is the case in his perception. And clashed with the American culture's concept of what is the case with regard to 
treatment of a child. So how would Wittgenstein even approach this? Well, you, you started with the quote, the world is all that is the case, and Wittgenstein might uh, conclude that there could be multiple worlds. Uh, th- there's a whole theory in, in logic called possible worlds theory that's, that's a little bit different than this. I don't want to confuse the two, but Wittgenstein uh, does seem to have this idea that a culture could have fundamentally different ideas and ideals from our culture, and they would behave much differently. To us, it would look completely strange. Uh, there's a famous example he uses in the remarks on the foundations of mathematics of a society who uh, makes its living by cutting wood and selling it, except they do it by uh, measuring the wood by how much area it covers as opposed to what we might call a more rational way of doing it by weight, let's say. Then he asked the question, if we went into this culture and tried to show them that the way they're doing it is wrong, how, how could we do that? Well, there might be no way to be able to do that. We, we, we could provide them with some sort of demonstration, but their reaction might just be, well, that's interesting, but that's not at all what we do. And so at that point, we would have to just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, there you have it. That's, there's nothing we can say. There's too big of a gap between our ideas and their ideas to cross over. So in the case of this Ethiopian guy, who was befuddled over what the big fuss is, he was simply being faithful to his culture, I guess all we could say to him was, move back to your own culture. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of people were f- uh, fond of using the phrase, when in Rome, uh-huh. I do as the right. Romans do, right, right? For, for these kind of ethical problems. And if, uh, if Rome happens to be... Uh, in Georgia, then I guess you have to behave as the Georgians would behave. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it does uh, make Wittgenstein's point, uh, because he's trying to make a subtle distinction between two extremes, I think, uh, one of which is just out-and-out relativism, mm-hmm. that anything we say is just relative to our frame of reference, and absolutism, the idea that there's only one way of doing things, and the notion of form of life for Wittgenstein works on multiple levels to, to address this, I think. Because on the one hand, he does seem to be describing the notion that there is a, such a thing as a human form of life. There's a, a set of features that we all have in common as human beings that unite us in certain ways. One of these would be the propensity to use language. But within that human form of life, there are multiple ways of living we see in different cultures. So there could be human as opposed to non-human forms of life, but then there are also multiple human forms of life as well. Uh, He gives a nice illustration of this in Philosophical Investigations, uh, where he says, um, if if a lion could talk, we we couldn't understand him, which I take it is his way of showing that there are differences between human form of life and uh, an animal form of life that's a huge gap as well. Now, the gap between one human form of life and another human form of life wouldn't be that big, but sometimes they can be uh, fairly big. And certainly the gaps between various forms of human life can also be big, too. Um, We'll get into ethics in our next series, but just the idea that there's a universal concept called human rights and the United Nations formulated this concept in 1948 and pretty much presumed it for the entire human race. 
but there are a lot of cultures that do not have this concept of human rights or they differ as to what the various rights are so we'll have to address that later but I, I don't think Wittgenstein was completely satisfactory in, in speaking about a universal ethic yeah he's not um, entirely clear on what this would look like or what the content of it would be certainly he, he does make some uh, very brief allusions to ethics none of which seem very helpful in terms of figuring out a true ethical theory. I mean, at one point in time he says uh, what is good is also divine and then he says as odd as that sounds, that sums up my ethics. Well, that's not a lot to go on though, no, it is. in terms of <laughs> no, no. how does that tell me what I'm supposed to do. Uh, he also sometimes says uh, the ethical is transcendent. It's transcendental. Uh, which for Wittgenstein means we can't talk about it. It's it, it's very important, but it's not something we can come to a, a logical understanding of. It's supernatural, he says at one point, ethics is. Yeah, he calls a halt to human investigations, especially in this famous phrase in uh, number seven of the Tractatus, where he says, of that which, which we cannot speak anymore, we must be silent. It almost says that there's a halt, there's a limit to the investigation of human knowledge. Yeah, and that doesn't seem to have changed very much between the time he wrote the Tractatus in the 20s and when he was writing on certainty uh, later in his life in the, in the 40s. He still seems to have this notion that there's a time where we stop asking these questions. It's very ironic because he's a philosopher and we mm -hmm. tend to think of philosophers as perennially asking questions. But Wittgenstein seems to want to say there's certain points where that just ceases. And in uh, religious philosophy, that's called the concept of the ineffable. And that almost leads us down a mystical path. And I don't know if we can go there right now. Yeah, Wittgenstein does want to go there uh, quite regularly, it seems like, at least in the in the early writing. Uh, there's, there's lots of um, uh, mysticism in the work called Tractatus Logical Philosophicus. It's a work primarily uh, about logic, mm -hmm. and yet it has a lot of interesting mystical elements. At one point he says uh, it's not how things are in the world that's mystical, but that it exists at all. Mm -hmm. and he, mm -hmm. he says in a lecture on ethics that he finds this to be a, a wondrous experience. I wonder at the existence of anything, how amazing it is that anything even exists. That's a brilliant insight that brings us back toward the way we began these, these whole series of discussions and, and broadcasts about philosophy beginning in wonder. For him, it also ends in wonder. And that'll be how we leave this season, wondering what's going to come next on Radio Free Philosophy. What a great note.